Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast, critical discussions in critical times. Here's your host, Bill Kelly. And welcome. This is the Bill Kelly Podcast, critical discussions for critical times. I'm your host, Bill Kelly. Uh, Glad you're with us today because I want to focus a little bit south of the border here and what's going on in the United States because all of the discussions we've had over the last little while about global politics, uh, what's happening, of course, in Europe with Ukraine, what's happening in the Middle East, uh, centers around Washington's response to this, especially uh, with some of the news that we received over the last little while about the death of three uh, U.S. servicemen uh, as a result of drone attacks. And uh, I guess the world is waiting right now to see just how the United States is going to respond. To talk about that and, and other things, politics, so please to welcome to the podcast, back to the podcast, Reggie Cicchini, Washington. Washington correspondent for Global News in the U.S. Capitol. Reggie, great to have you with us on a very busy day. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Bill. Let's let's go right into what's going on here because of what happened uh, with the drone attack. Three Americans are dead. I know that the Biden administration did not want to get dragged militarily into what's happening in the Middle East and into Gaza. Uh, what happens as a result of this? Biden has promised that there will be uh, some response from the United States. He hasn't said exactly when or how this is going to happen. I know Mitch McConnell and other Republicans are demanding that there be a military response to this. What's the latest? What are you hearing today? Well, I mean, look, uh, on Monday morning, we heard from the Secretary of Defense uh, at the Pentagon meeting uh, with the NATO Secretary General. Uh, and, and Lloyd Austin made a point of, of expressing sorrow over the fact that these three service members were killed, but also uh, to the point where he expressed outrage, saying that this kind of stuff will not be tolerated. And we heard similar tones coming from uh, the president yesterday. But you're right here in the question being what is the United States going to do? They do not want this to escalate beyond, um, you know, what is already a, a slowly escalating situation in the Middle East. They're ultimately trying to keep the initial conflict between Israel and Hamas contained uh, to an area between Israel uh, and Gaza. But the fact that that this that this attack happened uh, in Jordan, I mean, this is not something that the United States likely didn't expect uh, or predict uh, or were not worried about. I mean, th- there's been 160 attacks on U.S. infrastructure in the region since October 7th. Um, and you're right when there are some members of, of Congress, including Lindsey Graham, pushing the White House to say, look, we need to do something. We need to, to do direct targeting of Iran. There are some people out there, some experts, some former defense uh, uh, officials saying, look, that's not the way to do this. Those are old school tactics of going after Iran. This is essentially what they want America to do. Um, And, you know, maybe it's better off to go after um, things to to shake up Iran internally when it comes to information uh, or getting messages out to the Iranian people and sow some kind of discord that way ultimately here. How the U.S. responds is going to come under criticism from one side or the other. We don't know how that's going to happen. That's something that the president uh, is likely thinking about uh, and has been thinking about for the last little while. But this is an election year, as, as you guys have been reporting for the last little while. I mean, that's not lost on you and certainly not lost on the Biden administration. Uh, the Republicans and others in in, in the U.S. Uh, picture are basically using the old eye for an eye thing. Oh, you know, they killed some of our guys. We've got to retaliate in like fashion. Uh, but as you say, uh, you know, with the election imminent and Biden trying to walk a fine line here uh, between trying to be diplomatic, et cetera, is that really a, an intelligent strategy and an intelligent response to this? Well, I mean, look, d- diplomacy is ultimately going to be what, what's key here. Um, and it's because, you know, the president is keenly aware uh, of what happens if there is uh, if a, there's a direct strike on Iran. And look, let's point it out right from the get-go. Iran is denying any kind of uh, mm. direct responsibility for what happened in northern uh, Jordan. Essentially, you know, this may have been an Iranian proxy 
financially linked to Iran, militarily linked to Iran. But Iran is saying, look, we had no operational um, you know, uh, matters involved in this. So kind of playing a bit of plausible deniability here. Um, but but diplomacy is going to be key here because the president understands he does not want to take this situation um, and escalate it further than where it is right now in uh, an election period where he's already facing incredible criticism for American support uh, of, of Israel and for the crisis that's underway um, in Gaza. It's also worth pointing out here that when President Biden carried out strikes against uh, against Houthi rebels not all that long ago. He faced intense criticism from members of Congress for bypassing Congress uh, and carrying out this using presidential uh, authority. You now have members of the same party who criticized him saying, look, go out and carry full direct attacks on, on Iran. You know, what, what does that do? I mean, it potentially weakens President Biden if he does that and the U.S. gets drawn into war. But if he tries to use a diplomatic way going forward, it potentially weakens President Biden because Republicans will say you're not standing up for American interests and American national security um, throughout the region. So so President Biden finds himself in a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. And, and you know, the House and the Senate, I guess, are responding in kind, uh, which kind of ties us into uh, one of the other elements that I guess we're looking for some resolution for here is is funding for some of these global conflicts, not just for what's going on in the Middle East and in Gaza, uh, the funding for, for Israel, uh, but funding for Ukraine. And, and the Republicans, of course, have tied that funding uh, to the border crisis. Uh, it was, of course, the Mexican-U.S. border. Uh, and simply saying, if they don't have a solution to that, we're not going to pass the bill altogether. Uh, and the dynamic here, maybe you could explain it to to our, our listeners and our viewers on this, Reggie, is there was the bones of a deal already that seemed to be agreed upon by some Republicans anyway. Uh, is Donald Trump stirring the drink here? Is he the one that's saying don't pass this uh, because he wants this conflict to fester? He doesn't want any resolution? Yeah, I, I mean, in, in short terms, uh, yes, look, you have a, a, a bill that was brought forward by the White House, worked on extensively in a bipartisan structure in the United States Senate. You know, the House had said that this was going to be dead on arrival. They don't want to see any kind of border funding tied up with uh, uh, military funding for Ukraine and Israel and uh, and the Indo-Pacific region. They want things kind of decoupled from each other. But but the Senate has really been actively working forward on this. And then you enter uh, you see Donald Trump kind of enter the fray late last week to step on, uh, you know, leading members in the Senate to say, whoa, slow down. We don't want any kind of deal here, even though um, it will help militarily with Ukraine. It will help militarily with Israel. It will help secure the border. And part of the reason is, I mean, this is the quiet part being said out loud by members of the Republican Party and by Donald Trump. If a border deal, if, if a deal is signed and put in place um, and, and President Biden ultimately closes down the border to to try and slow down some of this illegal migration, it President, uh, rather former President Donald Trump, loses this as a campaign tool um, to say that the borders are a mess and, and and Joe Biden has done nothing. So look, we heard from Donald Trump say, "Look, I'll shoulder the blame for this. You can blame me for it." But ultimately, Republicans find themselves in a position of if they go along with Donald Trump, um, there's going to be no deal, and and that could sink them with voters going forward. If they don't go with Donald Trump, he could sink them for not going along with him. So. A deal needs to get done, and now it's Trump that's standing in the way of lawmakers doing their job. Is the focus, uh, as you perceive it, uh, Reggie, uh, that the Republicans are looking at right now in, in this election year, uh, moving more towards international politics and, and the global crises that are happening in these areas? Uh, it used to be the economy, to use James Carville's old line, you know, it's the economy, stupid. 
but the numbers are looking better. I, I mean, they're not out of the hole yet. Nobody is these days right around the world. Uh, but job numbers are better. The economy is looking better. Uh, I don't know that the Biden administration is doing a very good job of, of getting that message out there. But has it got Republican strategists now saying, OK, you know what, let's let go of that because that's not going to score that many points for us. And now are they looking at, at these other incidents, for instance, what's happening on the border? And then, I mean, that was a favorite of Trump when he ran for, for president the first time, uh, the border, the border. And we're hearing some of that same rhetoric from some Republicans, aren't we? Uh, including Governor Abbott in Texas. And, you know, these are rapists and murderers that are coming across the border. Uh, possible terrorists. I mean, Nikki Haley mentioned that on Meet the Press this past Sunday, uh, talking to Kristen Welker that, you know, these these are potential terrorists. We don't want another 9-11 because of what's happening on the Mexican border. Uh, are people buying that message from the Republicans? Well, you, you know what's interesting? Um, when I was in New Hampshire talking to uh, Republican voters, whether they were, uh, you know, standing in line at a Trump rally or whether they were coming in and out uh, of various Nikki Haley rallies, sure, the economy is still something they want to talk about. More on the Trump side, they'll say, look, the economy is doing terrible. Joe Biden uh, is sinking the American economy. And they don't really take into consideration that, you know, inflation is coming down uh, and prices are coming down uh, and the economy is doing better and job numbers uh, are kind of at all time highs. They don't really focus on on that they just kind of parrot Donald Trump's talking lines but the border situation even in a place like New Hampshire you know some some you know 40 states away from from the border um this is this is a concern for people even even at the farthest northern points of the United States because uh they have heard Republicans say that American national security is at, is at risk and sure this is an international uh matter we've seen Vice President Kamala Harris tasked with um, you know, this as, as a portfolio for her to try and get to root causes for why there's so much migration coming through what the United Nations has said is the deadliest human migrant path uh, on Earth, getting from Central America to the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, but but when you have Republicans saying, look, this is a, this is a, this is an issue, they're making it a domestic policy issue. Uh, and they are going to continue to say that there are, are failures and struggles in the Biden administration, even when there's active ways to try and get things done. I think a second part of this story here, uh, Bill, that, that kind of gets less focused, but is just as concerning, um, is how Governor Abbott is responding to the crisis at the border, fighting uh, the federal government, fighting uh, the Justice Department, fighting the Supreme Court in what Texas can and cannot do to secure its border. Border security in the United States is uh, is the responsibility of the federal government. Um, and, and we spoke to a lawyer uh, last week, a constitutional law um, expert, who says that Texas is really setting the United States up for a constitutional crisis over the border as it tries to take military actions into its own hands and, and potentially use other states' national guard to militarize the border. And, and the person I spoke to said, this is what the United States um, did, you know, when it got involved in the Civil War. It was this kind of rhetoric, these kinds of actions. So yes, securing the border is one thing the Biden administration is trying to do, but Republicans are also almost working to undo whatever success can be done here, because they, they simply want to take things into their own hand. And there's a risk that it gets out of hand. And Abbott's uh, activities there, is, it, I saw the reporting that you guys have done on this, and it's it's troubling from two sides. I mean, we're, we're used to the fact that, I mean, even here in Canada, uh, provincial responsibility versus federal responsibilities. And, you know, we, we have those debates about things like healthcare and so many other things. But down there, uh, it's a different mindset, isn't it, Reggie? I mean, states' rights have always been a, a very contentious issue down there, whether it comes to how to run elections. Uh, and with some of those cases are working them their way through the courts. But Abbott has basically said, you know, this is Texas. Uh, 
this is our domain, Washington butt out. And he's getting some support from some of the the neighboring governors who are saying, yeah, we'll, we're on side with you, Governor, uh, probably for their own self-interest, because they'd love to be able to have that sort of power as well. So this this is something that could really blow up for the Biden administration. Yeah, I mean, it's not even, um, you know, neighboring governors that are that are supporting Greg Abbott in, in his move to try and uh, secure the border. It's 25 Republican governors across the United States, half of the United States leadership. Uh, at the state level, is on board with with Greg Abbott in his attempts here to kind of subvert the U.S. Constitution and, and take matters into his own hands, and that potentially could um, spell dangers. You know, especially when we see Greg Abbott openly defying the U.S. Supreme Court, who said, "Look, Texas, you need to take down barbed wire that you've put up in the Rio Grande area or at Eagle Pass because not only is it considered, um, you know, potentially deadly for migrants trying to cross the border, but it 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 stops." Border Patrol agents from being able to do their job, take it down. So as it's being taken down, you have Greg Abbott now saying, nuts to that, we're going to start installing new razor wire. And you have Republican government saying, yeah, Greg Abbott, here, take some of our National Guardsmen um, to, to do what you want to do here. You have Texas kind of acting as its own, you know, country within a country. Um, and, and the question is, what happens if if the Biden administration ultimately does come to some kind of success here and, and a deal gets passed and they ignore what Donald Trump is saying? Does 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 Texas now find itself in a position of going against the solution and, and you know, finding itself in some kind of constitutional hot water? I mean, look, it's, it's a hot mess what's happening at the border and, and Republican politics um, may make what's already a deadly journey for so many people even more deadly with the way that they're trying to treat things. But uh, this is history repeating itself, I guess. And th as you say, the state's rights versus federal responsibilities uh, has always been an issue. I mean, dating all the way back to when Governor George Wallace wouldn't let James Meredith attend university. But the government of that time had the support of the Supreme Court, uh, ultimately. And, and of course, Wallace was told to stand aside. I think I actually arrested him. Uh, is is Abbott looking for that same confrontation right now? Uh, is he goading the administration into this to, to to try to to exert states' rights as opposed to federal rights? Sure, I mean, I mean, look, Greg Abbott does what he can repeatedly to to fight or or be a thorn in the side to the Biden administration or to the Justice Department or to Environmental Protection Agency or to now. Um, the Supreme Court, um, you know, and it's, it's unclear what, what the ultimate end game is here. You know, states' rights obviously are a fundamental part of the United States, and they're the reason that, that the U.S. operates the way that it does. But states' rights also, um, you know, they kind of rest upon the, the laurels of the Constitution. And, and there are parts of the Constitution um, that will be upheld uh, and will be upheld at the highest levels in the states. And it's unclear ultimately here what, what Greg Abbott is trying to do. Yeah, sure, he's trying to secure the border. Uh, but, you know, whether it's to, to, to secure points within his own state with the electorate or to secure, you know, ongoing support from, from former President Donald Trump, um, you know, it, it, this could be self-serving. This could simply just be, you know, uh, a middle finger to the Biden administration. Um, but but it's, it's really unclear here why Greg, Greg Abbott is digging in so hard rather than trying to work with the federal government that he claims is failing, but seems to be doing what it can and is now kind of getting stopped by Donald Trump and his wishes. Which is an old argument, I guess, political argument. Abbott's using it. DeSantis has used it in Florida in the past as well, uh, that the federal government, those are the bad guys. 
They're, they're trying to control your lives. They're trying to ruin your lives. I'm here for your own interest. And, and it seems to be a message that resonates with the, the citizens and, and the population in those states. Sure. I mean, not even in, in Texas. I mean, look, you could take that, that, that kind of comment and that rhetoric that comes from political, uh, from Republican politicians uh, and bring it right back to, to Donald Trump, who is critical of the federal government for absolutely everything that they do, especially mm-hmm. if he is involved in it. I mean, look, he, he was uh, found, a, a jury found um, that he owed E. Jean Carroll last week $83 million in a civil damages trial. And he laid that blame on the Biden Justice Department, even though this was a, a state matter in New York. You have Donald Trump complaining about the federal government in these immunity cases, or Donald Trump complaining about the federal government in uh, the business case, the business fraud case in New York. This is where um, some Republican politicians are. If if something is going wrong for them, blame somebody else. Don't blame yourself and then don't do anything to try and come to a compromise. Just use rhetoric to try and gin up the base because it works. At least it works in primary season, whether or not it works in, in general election season. Um, you know, that that's another question. You were on the ground in New Hampshire, and I'm glad you brought that up because it, it the resonate. A resonation of, of of the citizenry here is something that's interesting. Uh, you saw the results. Trump won, although there's an argument to be made that you know a guy who served in the White House and is supposed to be the supreme leader of the party probably should have got more than fifty three percent of the vote in in New Hampshire. But that's the situation. But the the interesting part about this is I think it was something like forty percent of the people that were polled after the the the, the voting came down, Reggie, suggested that if Trump was convicted in one of these trials, not, not necessarily the, the Carroll thing, because that, that's a, a civil litigation, uh, but convicted, he would not be fit for office, which begs the question is, are, are, is the legal problems that the Trump is facing right now starting to resonate and starting to concern American citizens? I think it's a question that's better asked after we get through a few more primaries, because there, you know, there's been one primary and one caucus, and they happened in two very different, um, you know, politically leaning states. Iowa is is a far more conservative state than mm-hmm. New Hampshire. New Hampshire has far more undeclared voters uh, who may kind of waffle back and forth between two parties, depending on who the leader is and what the problems are at the time. In Iowa, you had a significant number of people come out to say that Trump would totally be fit for president, even if he was convicted. A fewer number of people say that in, in New Hampshire. Not surprising, though, given that, you know, there, there were so many people that voted for Nikki Haley to keep Donald Trump out of the picture. And some Haley voters that I spoke with said that if she's not on the ticket, they will vote for Joe Biden in the general election. So it, it's two different kind of baskets of voters to look at that kind of question about, you know, whether Trump's legal problems are catching up to him. I think the question is is better asked after a state like South Carolina, which leans heavily towards Donald Trump, or a state like Nevada, which completely changed around its primary uh, schedule to turn it into a caucus to better suit Donald Trump. I think we're going to see more favorables of Trump uh, in some of these incredibly conservative uh, states as the primary season goes on, who will say and parrot that talking point that Trump's legal problems are not brought on by his own actions are brought on by a Democratic president who is simply out to get Donald Trump. New Hampshire didn't like it. Other states might. Uh, Nikki Haley, got a couple of minutes left. I want to talk a little bit about her. You know, she, of course, is the only uh, opponent that, of any consequence that Trump is going to be facing here on in. Uh, he seemed quite pissed off, frankly, Reggie, that she didn't drop out after New Hampshire. 
uh, listening to the, the way she was speaking on Meet the Press this past Sunday, uh, she says she's in it for the long haul. As a matter of fact, she's she's changed the tone of her, her of her campaign right now. She's going after Trump on a personal level, uh, saying that he's too old, he's he's losing cognitive uh, abilities in situations like this. Uh, and again, we have to wonder how effective that's going to be. Is it too late in the game for her to to adopt that kind of a strategy? I think I think a good question, if, firstly, is where was that strategy in the weeks leading up to mm -hmm. uh, to Iowa? Why was there so much kind of uh, kneeling before or kowtowing to things Trump has said um, when it may have drawn out more people or possibly pulled people away from DeSantis when he was still in the race? And there are criticisms against Haley for waiting too late. Now, that said... Uh, you know, she says she's going to stay uh, in this race and whether or not it's the the kind of rhetoric or criticism that she's lobbying at at her former boss and the former president. Um, or it's just, you know, there are some people who don't think Trump is still the best fit here. She's not going anywhere. and She's actually earning money. She made a million dollars after Trump had made those comments that he was going to blacklist donors of her from the, the MAGA party. And in the few days beyond that, She's raised another $4 million. So, I mean, she's at a point of where she's pretty plush with cash here uh, going into primary you know, season as we ramp up to Super Tuesday. And the speculation here is she'll have enough money left after South Carolina to continue on. She's not in the, the, the Nevada um, you know, caucus primary, whatever they're holding. Um, so there, 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 there's a belief here that Nikki Haley is actually going to stick this out through Super Tuesday, either to be a thorn in the side to Donald Trump or um, to, to see how much fundraising she can actually pull up here. Because Trump, as you said, is not happy about this and it's distracting him from being able to campaign against Joe Biden. Biden team loves this because they're just getting ad material out of it. Um, but she's not going anywhere. Um, and and it's, it's interesting to see that she's being defiant of the broader Republican Party who wants her out. And maintaining again that no, she's not never did get into the race to try to get on the ticket as the VP, so no. she doesn't want that, which begs the question what took you so long to get on side with with attacking Trump personally? Uh, if in fact he's even thought about vice president and uh, circumstances like this, uh, I mean, you know, I guess Congresswoman Stefanik is, is far more of the ilk of, of the sort of person that Trump would be looking for anyway. Uh, she was always to the right, of course, but she's, you know, she's apparently not just sipping the Kool-Aid. She's she's drinking it, uh, you know, by the gallon right now and has totally come on side as, as one of the mega responsibilities. That seems to me the sort of person that Trump would be looking at if he's looking for a running mate. Sure. I, 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 it could be her. It could be somebody like Carrie Lake, who finds herself yeah. embroiled in a series of scandals uh, in, in the U.S. Southwest. I think there's also a, a real possibility here that we see Donald Trump possibly cozy up to not uh, a leading female in the party who, you know, potentially could outshine him uh, with the kind of rhetoric that they have used in the past. Maybe someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene. There are speculations that that it could be Tim Scott that former President Trump ultimately tries to eye. We saw him kind of put Scott on the uh, in the center of the spotlight awkwardly in South Carolina, where you know, he was making comments about you must be really ticked off at Nikki Haley because she appointed you and you turned your back on her and went to me. And Tim Scott walks up beside him and says, no, it's because I love you, Donald Trump. I mean, it was weird. It was awkward. It was kind of strange and gross. But at the same time, that could also be somebody that Donald Trump looks to to secure a better part uh, of the electorate, especially in a, in a state like South Carolina. We don't know who it's going to be. Elise Stefanik is definitely a name that's been floated around, but now so too um, has Tim Scott. But at the end of the day, these are all people who firmly believe in not only Donald Trump, but Trumpism.
Well, it's a fascinating dynamic to see just how this is, is starting to flush out on the Republican side. Uh, I, I want to get into what's going to happen on the Democratic side with Biden as well. Some people are, are looking at South Carolina as the place where he's probably going to really start to kick it into high gear. We'll see how that happens. Uh, it's going to be a busy week in the uh, U.S. Capitol. Uh, I'm glad you had some time for us today, Reggie, to talk about this. Thanks so much for this. Uh, take care, and hopefully we'll talk again soon. Thank you. Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent for Global News in the U.S. Capitol. And that's it for this edition of the Bill Kelly Podcast. Until next time, take care. We'll talk soon. Bill Kelly Podcast brought to you by Wizens Law, personal injury lawyers. Listen, you didn't choose to get injured, but you can choose the right lawyer. Wizens Law, 905-522-1102 or wizenslaw.com.